Hebrews chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 verse 13 and it is quite a long passage but uh, I believe it is a very rich passage. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to, that were spo- to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here's chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word, and just as we just read, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we know that the word is active, we know that the word is living, and we pray, God, that it would live and reside within our hearts, that even as we hear the preaching of your word, that it would be something that not only informs us, but more importantly, something that forms our hearts, that transforms us to see Jesus, to have our desires directed towards him, and to give him the worship that he is worthy of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I know this was a long passage, but um, I don't want the 
the series of the book of Hebrews to go too long, so uh, we're going to take it in somewhat larger chunks. We're going through a series through the book of Hebrews, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time or if you haven't been here for a while. And uh, you know, I think today's passage will probably be relevant to many of us because if I were to make a generalization about uh, many of the people in this congregation, uh, I think I would say you're tired, right? You're tired. Uh, I know many of you have very demanding jobs, and it requires you to travel. It requires you to work evenings. It requires you to sometimes work weekends. Uh, we have these devices called smartphones, and therefore we can always read emails. We can always be contacted. We can always see issues that come up. I also know that some of you have jobs that are pretty stressful and there's a lot of demands and the work culture is not great and uh, intercommunicate or interrelational uh, things are not so good and there's politics that you have to deal with and there's a lot of pressure to perform. Uh, I also know some of you are parents and some of you have children and being a parent can also be a demanding job in itself. In addition to making sure that your kids stay alive, you have a lot of chores to do, right? There's a you know, when you have kids, one thing I didn't realize is you just got to do a lot more chores. There's more laundry to do. Uh, you have to do more grocery shopping. You have to prepare food all the time. You have schedules to organize. You have doctor's appointments to go to. Not only that, if your child in particular is a baby or is a very young child, uh, there's a good chance that you're probably not getting that much sleep, right? And so therefore, you don't feel very rested. Are you tired? I believe you are, many of you. But not only that, we live in New York City. New York City has this pace of life or this kind of culture and even work culture that uh, you know, when you first come here is kind of exciting, but <laughs> over a long period of time it begins to wear on you, I think. Uh, many of us probably actually like the pace of like in life in New York, uh, which is why you're here. But even if you like it, I still think you're going to go through seasons where you just feel worn out. Uh, there's another kind of weariness that I think people in general are starting to feel, and this is outside of just the physical weariness and the weariness related to vocation, but uh, I think there's also a tiredness that comes from simply just reading the news. Uh, last week, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, but pretty recently, there's a news about another school shooting, I believe in Colorado. Personally, I'm very tired about reading these stories about shootings that happen in schools. Uh, I read another story about these students and uh, they were uh, having a vigil, and a politician came in and started talking about political issues like gun control, and these students, they were tired of uh, having these kinds of events politicized, and they decided to walk out because they thought, oh, here comes another politician politicizing our grief, and that politician later apologized, uh, but I know how these students feel in terms of even politics and reading political news. It's just getting very tiring. There's so much negativity happening all over the world. There's an editorial I read a few years ago, and uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but it was after an event in Dallas where several police officers were uh, gunned down, and the author, I think, sum summarizes it well. He says this, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes, I am sick and tired of gut-wrenching officer-involved shootings like those captured on video in Louisiana and Minnesota, and now of the methodical assassination of Dallas police officers who were doing their jobs properly protecting citizens at a rally. Yes, I am sick and tired of emotionally weeping every few weeks because of the acts of a madman at a school or church, or worrying as police lock down a public facility in search of a possible gunman. I'm also sick and tired of rapid rushes to judgment, polar political opposites exploiting moments of pain, of code language suggesting that every black man is a criminal and every police officer violates civil liberties. Justice for all means justice for all. I'm sick and tired that we can dissent over something so fundamental. 
Now, he wrote this uh, several years ago, and it is uh, crazy how true it is today. <laughs> now, what do we do when we are tired? Simple answer is you, you got to rest, right? You need rest. When you're physically tired, you need physical rest. Another article in the Wall Street Journal several years ago about a successful Olympic runner, and you know what he says uh, the secret is to being a successful runner? The secret is to not run. So a portion of the year, uh, I think maybe a month or two or something, he tries to be as lazy as possible. He doesn't train. He tries to be a couch potato. He just sits. He just watches TV. He just veges as much as possible because he knows that his body needs rest. And if he is going to perform at a high level as an Olympic runner, he knows rest is a requirement. If you're emotionally tired, and what does that mean? It means you're stressed out, you're sad, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're angry all the time. You need to experience rest as well from all those negative emotions because otherwise those feelings are going to end up consuming you. I think maybe emotional rest can be a little bit more elusive and maybe uh, some of us don't exactly know how to experience that kind of rest, but the fundamental point is when you are tired, you need rest. It is so important that the Old Testament actually commands it. What is one of the Ten Commandments in the Bible? Well, it has to do with rest. And that commandment, uh, along with things like not, do not murder and do not commit adultery and those kinds of things, it is commanding a specific kind of rest, a Sabbath rest patterned after God's rest. Now, we are going in a, through a series uh, in the book of Hebrews and uh, as I've mentioned each and every week, the book of Hebrews is trying to encourage believers who are discouraged and afraid. And the reason why they are discouraged and afraid is because they are being persecuted for their faith. And so what the author of Hebrews ultimately wants to do is encourage them by saying this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so what we're going to look at today in our passage is Jesus is better because he offers a better rest a rest for our souls that we all truly need. Uh, now, let me also say, I think this passage is a little bit complex and uh, a little bit hard to follow. So here's how we're going to do it. I want to organize it by framing it around three questions. Uh, first question we'll ask is, what is the kind of rest that this passage is talking about? Second question is, why do we really deeply need this rest? And finally, how do we enter into this rest? So first question, what is the rest in this passage? Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why, why this passage is actually a little bit difficult to follow is because uh, the way it uses the word rest uh, changes. You know, this, this is structured like a sermon, and uh, if you see the quotations, basically it's quoting from a psalm from Psalm 95, and then it's trying to preach from it and apply it to this congregation. And, you know, some sermons can be hard to follow, right? Especially when uh, the preacher doesn't use words in a consistent manner. I remember I did this early on when I talked about this very message, and I talked about being tired, and I talked about being rest. And uh, later on, I found out, you know, people were like, oh, and I think this kind of message resonates with uh, all New Yorkers because I think everybody <laughs> feels like they need rest. And I remember after uh, preaching this sermon, uh, I heard that someone was like, yeah, I really needed to hear that message, and they made the application. I get, I didn't. I, I think I need to take a break from church, right? And they stopped coming to church for a while. I was like, no, 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 that wasn't the application. So let me be clear, right? The kind of rest that this passage is not talking about is like uh, taking a break from church. Um, but, you know, if, if, I, uh, 
you know, if you use words in a different way and you kind of switch the meanings a little bit, you can understand why it would be confusing, right? I actually did that in the beginning of my sermon because I began by talking about rest or tiredness as uh, physical tiredness and physical weariness, and then I switched it because I started talking about uh, maybe emotional tiredness and then societal tiredness. These are all different, different forms of tiredness which require different forms of rest. The author of Hebrews here, you know, he's actually kind of doing the same thing because when he uses the word rest, he doesn't mean it the same way every time he uses it. And you can see why somebody would get confused here. The first use of rest is found in verse 11, and here he's quoting Psalm 95. And Psalm 95, it's talking about a period in Israel's history where they were wandering through the wilderness, and they rebelled against God, and they rebelled against Moses. And as a result of their rebellion, what God says, as I swore in my wrath, they say, they shall not enter my rest. They will not enter into the promised land. After journeying in the wilderness for many, many, many years, for 40 years, not entering into God's rest meant you will not enter into this land. In Joshua 1.13, Joshua says to the people, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So rest is equated again to land. If you think about wandering in the desert for many years and being this kind of nomadic community, the lack of food, the lack of water, the instability, you want to find rootedness, you want to raise your family in a comfortable setting, all these kinds of things, they are looking forward to that period being over so they can finally find rest. And that rest is supposed to be found in the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so the first use of rest in verse 11 means entering the promised land. Now this first generation of the wilderness Israelites, they never enter into the promised land as a result of their rebellion, but the next generation did. And so they received the rest that Joshua is telling them about. But then in Hebrews 4.8, it says this, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The implication is they didn't receive that rest through Joshua. And you kind of say, yeah, but they kind of did, didn't they? Didn't Joshua lead them into the promised land? Didn't they actually get the land? But the author, again, is using rest in a different way. Now he doesn't seem to be meaning entering into the promised land, but he is talking about a different kind of rest. Look at chapter 4, 1. He says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That means the promise of entering God's rest is still available, which means he's obviously not referring to the promised land. You think about one of the uh, sharpest departures that the New Testament takes from the Old Testament is the Old Testament is all about the land, but once you start reading the New Testament, does it ever mention land? Is land even a priority? Is land even important in the New Testament? No, it's not. Why? Because that physical land, that land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, it is basically a foreshadow of things to come in Christ, in the new creation. And this is the second way that the author is using rest. It is not a physical rest in a physical land, but it is a heavenly rest or an eternal rest in which, by which, believers' hope is ultimately supposed to be in. Now that's reinforced in chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, when he talks about another kind of rest. He talks about the Sabbath rest. Now the Sabbath rest is patterned after the pattern of creation. And God rested from his work on the seventh day. If you look in the creation account in Genesis, you have this common refrain, right? God creates on this day, and the day ends with morning and evening. This happens for six days, but you know the day that it's missing, 
It doesn't say that for the seventh day. It doesn't say, and then there was morning and there was evening. Now, uh, theologians like as early as St. Augustine, at least from what I find, St. Augustine points out the seventh day doesn't have this refrain, and therefore this seventh day must mean it is an everlasting rest. So when the author of Hebrews says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, it's not talking about more sleep. It's talking about deep spiritual rest that comes by way of being in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth, this eternal rest for our souls. That was heavy exegesis and heavy theology. The rest of the message is not going to be like that. All right, so what do we do with that, right? Uh, What do we do with the meaning of that text? And I think this leads to our second question. Uh, Why do we need this kind of rest for our souls, this heavenly, eternal, everlasting rest, this seventh-day Sabbath rest? Well, according to this passage, one of the reasons why we need this rest is so that we don't have hardened hearts, okay? Now, what is a hardened heart? At its core, it's an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. That's what it says in chapter 3, verse 12. But what does a hardened heart look like? It's a heart, I think, that ultimately lacks confidence and hope. The author is saying this, look at the Israelites, look at them when they were in the wilderness and learn from their mistakes. They hardened their hearts and we know they hardened their hearts because ultimately what they said is, let's go back to Egypt. Let's be slaves again. It has to be better than entering into this promised land. Rest, I think, in all its forms is an expression of freedom, right? It's an expression of freedom. You know, uh, when you celebrate the Passover Seder, in, uh, traditionally, uh, what Jewish people would do is you don't actually sit down at a table. You recline and you l- kind of lie down. And the significance of like lying down and eating a meal is like, it's like a resting position, right? So it's a declaration of their freedom. As they're celebrating the Passover supper, the Passover meal, they're also celebrating how God gave them freedom. If you cannot rest from your work, You know what it means? You're a slave. You are enslaved to your work. Some of you may have careers where your employer doesn't allow you to rest, and so chances are you probably already feel like a slave, right? Uh, You know what it feels like to be enslaved to something. You know that it can kill you on the inside. I think for other people, maybe this kind of enslavement is a little bit self-imposed. We we actually like being super busy, and uh, you know, I think we have different reasons for that, but uh, if I could make a generalization, you know, there was this piece in the New York Times many, many years ago called The Busy Trap, and uh, the author, he says, <coughs> I think he lives in New York, so he's like, you know what the default response is when you ask people, how are you doing? It's always, oh, busy, so busy, crazy busy, right? And uh, here's his diagnosis of that default response. He says this, it is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. You know what he's saying, right? In other words, uh, there's probably a part of us that likes to be busy or at least likes to convey that we are busy because it makes us feel like our lives are meaningful and important. I would also add, you know, if we're too busy with our lives, it, it probably does give us a legitimate excuse to be a little bit more self-centered and less giving to other people, right? Uh, that is 
what hardening of our hearts looks like for some of us, at least. If you dig beneath the surface of that, that kind of enslavement, that kind of even self-driven enslavement, where is it rooted? It's a lack of confidence and a lack of hope. How so? You see, that drive to be busy uh, all the time is a way to gain confidence. It's a way of self-validation, right? Now, by the way, that doesn't just apply to our careers because, as I said, we have a ton of work even outside of our, uh, our jobs proper. Uh, for those of you who are parents, raising children can be a lot of work. But we can take the role of being a parent and easily turn it into a form of self-validation as well. There's this writer named Joseph Epstein. Uh, he's not a believer, but uh, he's a great writer. And uh, I think he coined this term, kindergarten. Right? You have an oligarchy. Uh, he says uh, there's something called a kindergarten, and under kindergarten, he writes all arrangements are centered on children, their schooling, their lessons, their predilections, their care and feeding, and general high maintenance. Children are the name of the game. Uh, if you are a parent here, I know not everybody is a parent here, but if you are a parent here, I am pretty sure we all feel this tug right towards kindergarten because we don't want to be bad parents, right? You don't want to be bad parents. But here's the irony. Ironically, there are these studies coming out, and again, not Christian studies, but studies coming out that says making your children the center of everything is probably ultimately not good for your children. Uh, there's this researcher who interviewed thousands of children between the grades of 3 through 12, and I, uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think we have kids in third grade yet, so this wouldn't apply uh, to many of you, but interviewed kids uh, between grades 3 through 12, and basically said, grade your parents, right, in the following. <laughs> so when the question had to do with, uh, you know, is your parents, does your parents affirm you and make you feel important? You know, a lot of parents got A's and B's. Is your parents present and at all events and all these things? And a lot of parents got A's and B's. You know where parents did the worst? Uh, kids criticize their parents the most because of, get this, anger issues, right? <laughs> anger issues and they said can your parent control their temper right d f <laughs> that's what their kids said about their parents now isn't that interesting uh, anger issues the researchers uh one of the conclusions that they make is children are probably suffering from secondhand stress secondhand stress now by trying to do much for them in the midst of all this busyness Parents can actually make their kids less happy because they're just so angry all the time. Therefore, it might be better if parents just planned less things, were less busy, did fewer activities, even took breaks from their own kids and went out apart from their kids. That might actually be better for your kids, believe it or not. Now, that's just one researcher. I'm not qualified to say if it's a good conclusion or a right conclusion or a bad conclusion or a wrong conclusion. But it is interesting that people are even starting to see how important rest is in something like parenting, right? We need rest. Now, the reason why I think some of us have a hard time taking a break, again, going back to my original point, we lack confidence. We have insecurities, and we look to the work that we do, whether in career, whether in uh, parenting, whether in uh, whatever you might consider work, whether it's just creating a nice-looking home, uh, we are looking for self-validation in our work. And one of the reasons why we need God's rest is because what God's rest does is it gives us a new confidence and a new hope that is not rooted in our work. But do you know where that confidence and hope is rooted in? 
the work of another, the work of Jesus Christ. You know, isn't that what verse 314 is getting at? The author says, exhort one another so that you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We get to become partakers in Christ. And here's, here's what I want you to pay attention to. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. If we hold to our original confidence, to, what is that original confidence? It is Christ himself. It is his work. Or to put it another way, we have to enter into God's rest and experience his rest. So how do we do that? How do we enter into God's rest? How do we obtain that deep spiritual rest that we all long for? And that's our final question. The answer is ultimately this. You, you have to believe. 4.3 says it. For we who have believed enter that rest. Faith and rest are like these intimate partners. And uh, the more your faith is directed in where it ought to be directed, the more rest you will be able to experience and feel. Uh, and ironically, you'll actually be able to take more breaks because your confidence is no longer in the work that you do, but in someone else. We're going to look at faith uh, more uh, in greater depth in chapter 11 because chapter 11 is the faith chapter. But let me just say this for now. Faith essentially means that you trust, right? You put your trust in something. Trust in what? Your trust in Jesus. Trust that he is better than the prophets. Trust that he is better than the angels. Trust that he is even better than Moses and Joshua. Whereas Moses and Joshua were these really good leaders, these revered leaders in their own right, they still could not bring the people of God to a place of rest. That's what the beginning of chapter 3 is saying. Moses was faithful, right? Moses was faithful. But he wasn't the builder of the house. Moses was a faithful servant, but he wasn't a son. Jesus is the builder. Jesus built God's house, which we are, as a son, and therefore he is able to ultimately bring to completion what Moses and Joshua could not do. Jesus is how we can enter into God's rest. If you look at the end of chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And then the next verse says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, when I first read that, uh, I wondered, what's the connection between verse 11 and verse 12, right? It's talking about striving to enter into God's rest, and then all of a sudden, it starts talking about the word of God, but there is this uh, logical connection there because of the word for. And uh, uh, as I was thinking about it, you know, I think, uh, I think it breaks down like this. Uh, you know, the word for... Uh, expose, in terms of the word of God exposes us, it's this Greek word, uh, trachelitso. And I think it's where we get the word trachea, right? Has, having to do with the neck. Now, I was reading uh, in a commentary that some people think that the imagery of exposure is like, right, you're exposing your neck, right? Uh, I have a, like a little neck phobia, my worst nightmare, my least favorite Greek word, but it's like you're exposing your neck. The word of God is a sword, a double-edged sword, right? And it can push, cut you, it can destroy you, it can kill you. <laughs> uh, now, why is it a double-edged sword? Why is it a two-edged sword? Well, one commentator says this. One edge of the sword slices in judgment. The other edge slices in salvation. So as a result of our sin, our necks are exposed. One edge of the sword should judge us and cut our necks, so to speak. But what does the other edge do? How does the other edge give us life and salvation? It slices Jesus' neck so to speak, metaphorically. You know, the very next verse, which isn't printed here, we'll look at next week, talks about how Jesus is our great high priest. 
In the Old Testament, the thing that priests do is they offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people for the atonement of sin. Jesus is our great high priest, but what does he do? He offers himself. He offers himself. He is the one who dies the death that we deserve. He is the one who hangs upon the cross in shame and nakedness. He is the one who ultimately exposes his neck for us on our behalf, and he is the one who is cut for us. Why? So that we can enter into God's rest. That's the gospel, right? This is the gospel that I hopefully I preach every week that hopefully many of us are familiar with. And so if that is how we ultimately enter into God's rest, uh, how do we experience it, right? How do we experience rest, practically speaking? Uh, my, uh, my heart is just so full of weariness. My soul is just so weary. I need rest. How do I experience that rest? How do we stay the course? Well, here there's a, a negative and a positive exhortation. Uh, 3.12 says this, Take care, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And basically what that means is, you know, be careful. Um, guard your heart. The road to hardness of heart and unbelief is not a difficult path to follow if you have been deceived by sin and if your fundamental hope has been taken away. Look at the Israelites in the wilderness and learn from them. Be afraid at the prospect that you could easily be like them. That's what chapter 4 verse 1 says, right? But there's also a positive exhortation here. And uh, here, we'll go back to the beginning of the passage, and it says this, Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The word consider, I don't believe, is strong enough. Uh, if, you, if someone asks you to do something and you say, mm, I'll consider it, right? Uh, what it basically means is, yeah, I'm open to it, I'll think about it but you know, I'm not sure. What the author of Hebrews is saying here when he says consider Jesus, he's saying this, contemplate Jesus. Ponder Jesus. Think deeply and carefully about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Focus all of your thoughts on Jesus and resist anything that can distract you from seeing Jesus. That is what he's saying when he says, consider Jesus. Consider his work, consider his love, consider his grace, consider his power, consider his sacrifice, consider his cross. And when we gather together as believers, this is why the application shouldn't be, oh, take a break from church on Sundays, right? Uh, what we're trying to do here as we gather on Sundays is not fulfill some kind of religious duty. We are gathering together as a community to consider Jesus. That this experience here right now, what we are all doing right now, it is meant for us to taste the rest that is to come as we consider Jesus. We are trying to exhort one another to follow Jesus because he is worthy, right? Because he is good, because he is, as we sang before, he's beautiful, he's wonderful, he's all of these things. And Jesus offers us a wonderful invitation every day, but in particular on Sundays when we gather here. He gives us an invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and burdened. Come to me, and I will give you rest. 
Uh, let's not do what we typically do when we get an invitation, uh, which is let's wait to respond <laughs> and respond later on, right? Uh, Jesus calls us each and every Sunday in the moment. Let's respond to Im- him immediately and come to him because what he promises us when we do is rest for our souls. Let's pray together.